This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say... More often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their multivitamin elite, their whey protein, the super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now to qualify for the 35% off, 
go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kent Stanway. Now, Kent is the only member of the Canadian Armed Forces who began his career as a search and rescue technician and then transitioned into the role of pilot. So we discuss a host of topics from the impact of childhood bullying, his journey into the military, the incredible gamut of skills a search and rescue technician is responsible for, stress inoculation, tactical athlete fitness, how his operational knowledge transitioned into the role of pilot, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kent Stanway. Enjoy. Well, Ken, I want to start by saying thank you to Dave Prashera Best for introducing us and thank you to you because I know you haven't done a podcast before and, you know, it took a little uh, persuading to get you on here in a positive way. Um, hopefully that you realize this is a project worth your, uh, your first conversation. So I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you very much, James. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? I'm in uh, beautiful British Columbia in uh, Comox, just by the, the Air Force Base there. Brilliant. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, so I was born in Calgary, Alberta. And then uh, I think within the month, my parents moved to uh, Boston for the first year of my life, uh, they had a pretty big life-changing event. My dad ended up getting uh, acceptance to Harvard. Uh, so he went and did his master's there for the year. Uh, so on top of going to one of the more difficult schools, he had a newborn, so that was a challenge for them. And then he returned to uh, Calgary where I did uh, I did grow up. Uh, and then I had uh, my younger brother, Reed, was born... Uh, two years later. And yeah, so we, uh, we grew up in Calgary, uh, really loved it there near the Rockies, 
grew up in the Rockies, really, uh, really found a passion for, for being outside and getting outdoors. Uh, I was fortunate enough for my parents to, uh, to get me into a, a summer camp there. So I spent a lot of time in the mountains, uh, a little bit more background on my parents. They're both, uh, both educated. So they're, they were very, uh, very big into like post-secondary and, and going that route. Whereas I found, uh, as I grew up, I was more of a hands-on kind of guy. And so uh, I kind of diverged from probably the path they thought or saw me going down at some point. Um, I think I'd, I'd, be, uh, I'd be silly not to touch on like junior high was, uh, was a tough time for me, for sure, as it, I'm sure it is for most uh, young kids. I didn't really fit in, didn't, uh, didn't fit the mold. A lot of uh, a lot of bullying that I had to deal with, and I actually ended up going to uh, looking into like cadets at around sixteen, which was kind of late to the party. Now that I checked it out with my dad, and realized uh, actually it wasn't as organized as I wanted it to be, and wasn't really for me. So I went across the street and checked out the reserves, and apparently you can join the reserves at sixteen. So with your parents' signature, so they were open to it. So I said, you know what? Yeah, this is, this is way better. I get paid to, to go and do things. And so I ended up, uh, jumping into the reserves full time, did basic training in shallow Manitoba at 16. And, uh, again, came back to Calgary, uh, and the bullying was still a thing. And I, w I wasn't really fitting in with the crowd that kept following me from school to school. So my parents, uh, had the means to put me into, a private school for high school. So I was able to kind of recreate myself, uh, rebrand, if you will, and then uh, continued with the reserves as a signal operator, so the radio guy. Um, and because that was what the recruiter told me was the best way to get to pilot, which was funny because it's not. But... Uh, so that brings me to the end of high school, uh, where I tried to get into the Royal Military College in Canada and uh, failed to get entry into that program for pilot. So that was a that was a big setback as well, because uh, I, pre I, I prepared quite, quite heavily to get into that program. And so uh, I was a little frustrated because I had already had like two, three years in the military at that point, which is more than like a lot of the applicants that do go to RMC. So I was a little confused with that. And I was like, I don't really understand. I don't know what they're looking for. They were just looking for the cerebral academic uh, standards to get in. And so I said, okay, well, um, we'll shift gears. Went the city university uh, route. Like I was saying, both my parents advocated big time on post-secondary. So I ended up getting accepted into the engineering program at Acadia University. So I moved to, across the country, uh, which was nice to kind of escape the parents and again, kind of re reinvent myself. Uh, ended up doing, uh, doing that, discovering that uh, signal operator wasn't really giving me what I was looking for with the military and I was still in the reserves at university. And so I, uh, I changed trades again and went uh, infantry. Um, and that was right around when Afghanistan was kicking off. 
uh, in kind of the 2006 time frame. And I was probably in third year university where the unit I was with was sending some guys and I was, I was like, this is my chance. I'll definitely go overseas. This is a good idea. And then uh, the parents talked me out of it, said, you know what, finish the degree if the war is still going on after and you want to go. We won't stop you, but uh, I don't think if you leave, you'll come back. And to their credit, they're probably right. So uh, I opted to, to finish the degree to uh, to my benefit. As we get through the story, you'll, you'll see where it kind of comes full circle. And uh, yeah, so I finished the degree. Uh, and then by that time, the, the opportunity to go overseas was gone, which was fine. Uh, because I'm sure you've had some chats with people that, uh, come back from overseas. It's, it's, a, it's hard on the brain. I don't think you, you come back the, the same person that you, you leave. Um, and so then I, uh, I started looking elsewhere. Like, I'm like, what am I going to do? Chemical engineering wasn't really looking like the thing I wanted to do. Uh, so I started looking elsewhere, and uh, in my search, I found the accredited uh, mountain guide program at uh, Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. Uh, went through the whole application process, got acceptance to their two-year program, was about to pull the trigger. Um, that one was going to be on me. I looked at my dad, and he's like, nope, I helped you through your first degree. If this is seriously something you want to do and live out of a Subaru, that uh, that's your path. And I'm like, okay. He's like, is there anything in the military that kind of checks the boxes? And uh, that's where I started looking. And there was like a small window of time where as a reservist, I could apply to be a search and rescue technician. And that checked, uh, that checked a lot of boxes. Um, so I put my application in and sure enough, in the awesome bureaucracy of my military, the, uh, the application got lost. So I missed the first selection that first year. Which again, like a door closes, another one opens. I was then able to get onto uh, the reconnaissance patrolman course for the infantry. So that's kind of like the lead in for getting you ready to do, uh, if you're in the rank force, kind of leading you into the more sniper cell of, um, of the infantry. And uh, that was a tough course. It was, a, it was a definitely a tough course. I watched a lot of people not finish that one. And so it was good. It was good for the navigation, the land navigation kind of, uh, I think it really uh, built a good foundation for the search and rescue selection, which I then did the, that would have been, oof, I would have been the fall of like 2010, set me up for selection, fall of 2009. And then that would have set me up for selection for 2010. And then uh, ended up going to uh, selection. And in the interview, halfway through selection, uh, they're like, why are you here? And I'm like, well, I mean, I, I got nothing else. Like I'm a reservist, I'm finished school. Uh, I have no other employment. So I, I'm not gonna quit because I need the paycheck, just even for the selection. Like it was just rough at that time for, for finding work as a reservist. And uh, I ended up getting picked up out of the, the 30 candidates that went, I think they chose nine, nine or 10 that year to do the course. Uh, and yeah, then I uh, I went and did the, I came here in Comox and did the, because I sort of do the training for, for search and rescue. Did that for, uh, 
for the year. It's, uh, you kind of bounce all over the place, you go up to the Arctic, go down to the States, do the jumping, uh, down to Victoria for the diving and your medical paramedic license. Uh, and then finish that. Uh, just prior to all that, I, uh, I should probably rewind and bring my wife into the mix. I met her uh, while I was doing some reservist work in Halifax. She was uh, a bosun uh, by trade. So she's Navy. Um, so that's really my only exposure to Navy uh, is through my wife. But uh, other than that, I pretty much checked all of the elements. Uh, and so she and and myself were just kind of getting together as before I left on this year long course. And I realized like, she's probably not going to wait around forever. So I asked her, I asked her to marry me before I went on the course. Kind of try to trap her, <laughs> which worked. Uh, and so that was a tough course on us, but we made it through. And then I got posted to uh, Greenwood, Nova Scotia for uh, a five-year posting as a Sartec. Upgraded to, to team leader on the Hercules and the Cormorant. And it was actually uh, in Greenwood talking to some of the pilots there that I was like playing with the idea of like, oh, you know what, maybe I'll try to fly this thing, you know, like maybe I'll reattack it. And it was half joking, but half serious. And then uh, after my uh, posting there, we uh, we got posted to uh, to Gander, Newfoundland where uh barbara and i had our daughter layla and uh i did a three year you know four years there as a sartec and that's uh that's when i was like you know what i'll uh i'll try again and submitted my application for um pilot and that uh that was another hurdle because again the the academics came back to kind of to bite me uh i the recruiter or the the, uh, the CAF member that's responsible for kind of organizing, like switching between trades and stuff was saying like uh, my Canadian Forces aptitude test score wasn't high enough, um, but she could waive it to let me go to air crew selection. And I'm like, well, let's do that. I mean, because I had already <laughs> got my degree. So we go full circle. I got the degree, which enabled me to uh, to bypass this hurdle that really I think stops a lot of good people from getting into uh into these other um to these officer jobs and uh did the air crew selection and and that one was brutal that was brutal in a different way than the search and rescue selection and that it's just like two days of eight hours on a computer just to task switch and got you going all over the place um I think there must have been like 24 20 or some odd uh, young kids. I was the oldest guy in the room for sure. <laughs> and uh, I think only both three of us got picked up. Like it's a, it's actually be, it's based in, uh, it's based on Britain's uh, air crew selection and it, uh, it's ruthless. I think I only passed it by three points, but it was enough to get me in. And then I looked at Barbara and she, uh, she supported me uh, going out doing the training on my own. I, I elected not to bring her and Layla and keep the, the family stability here at home. And it would be easier to just focus on, on the training. And uh, I was able to, to get through it quite quickly. And, uh, and 
And then again, uh, because of my connections with search and rescue, I was able to find my way back into the fold. And now I've moved from the back of the bus to the front of the bus. And I'm now flying operationally here on the, on the Cormorant in uh, Comox. So that, uh, that's a long winded answer to, to tell me about where you live or where you're from, where your parents are all about, but yeah, no, no, but that's good. Well, you walked us through, I'm going to definitely, you know, go back a little bit. Um, but just while we're on this subject, seeing as you walked us through, Dave said, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you're probably the only pilot, SAR pilot that actually started as a SAR tech. Is that correct? As far as you know, I would say, uh, since the Cormorant has been in service, I would say absolutely. I don't think I know of another StarTech who's done it this way. I know of a couple pilots that went the other way. Um, one of my course mates uh, used to fly the Sea King, uh, and then he gave that up to go search and rescue. I argue I, I chose the better way of doing it, but uh, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's a unique story for sure. So I'm a member of a Facebook page with a lot of the people I went to school with when I was young. And I had a basically a bright blonde afro, buck teeth. I was like a walking skeleton. I think I was about two and a half feet tall when I was 17. Um, and uh, so there were multiple things, dry skin, multiple things that, you know, could be made fun of. And I, I ended up, I wouldn't say I really had bullying but I ended up having to be funnier than anyone else was about myself. So almost like comedy was a was a coping yeah. mechanism. But they asked on this page, hey, send us a picture of what you're doing now. And so I proudly sent one of my pictures of me. It was actually at a kind of fitness fundraising event, but in firefighter gear. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's what they call a glow up. I think, you know, I turned out completely different. One of my guests, one of my friends I had on who joined the army, he was like, James, you were, someone told me someone when we went to school was going to become a firefighter. You were the last person I would have thought. So here you are now, a pilot, a SAR tech, you know, and, you know, obviously very athletic, doing one of the most dangerous jobs on the planet. So talk to me when you were in that early school age, what, what was the bullying experience like for you and what were they picking on? Uh, so they found a way to like um, twist uh, my first name from Kent into uh, into uh, go with cunt. I mean, uh, <laughs> I was going to interject. But what if I get it, it wrong? Right? What if it was yeah, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I can't. I can't even spell it out. Like it is what it is. And so at that time, it was just it was just savage. It cut through. Um, that was one of the things. Uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't follow hockey. I didn't, I just, I wasn't a team playing sport. I did martial arts. Started that when I was like five and I did that until I was 18. Uh, like I did a Korean style martial art called Hapkido for, for years. And, uh, so that was kind of, that was what I did. And it wasn't, it wasn't on the hockey team. I wasn't doing any of that teams. Like I just was, I, I rather compete against myself than uh with a with a group of people uh i think is kind of what i what i had going and so the bullying was uh was brutal and i think i I probably went a little bit similar to you where if you can learn to laugh at yourself and and be an, an active listener more than you can you can kind of read the room and kind of chameleon yourself into social situations uh in uh in a subtle way 
And I think uh, once I figured that out, then I, uh, once you can figure out how to laugh at yourself, things get a lot easier, I think. Well, I can relate because I didn't follow football, which is a cardinal sin in England. Who's your team? Yeah. I don't have a oh, team. Sure. What do you mean? But I loved martial arts. So I like boxing. I like, you know, fighting. And I did taekwondo. So you, you did, you know, more like the Aikido style. I did more like the karate style, but both Korean. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the, the same thing. It was like, oh, I'm going to take your man card. Oh, wait a second. You can have it back. You said you like fighting. And it was so ridiculous. And I, I identified this even as a, as a young kid. But like I said, I was lucky where it never got really bad, but I've had people on here where bullying, I mean, was, was awful. I had one, Bass Rutten, who ended up becoming an MMA fighter who got bullied and beaten up when he was younger, became a fighter, and then he and a couple of friends that were bullied beat the shit out of every bully they'd ever had in their school, which is more of an Old Testament way of doing it, but I get it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so talk to me, like how, you know, what was the impact? Because that can be just crushing to the point where some of our children are taking their own lives. So how how deep did you get as a result of some of that bullying? Yeah, I'm trying to think. It. Uh, I mean, it's weird. You look back at it now, and it, and it and it's got to be part of the catalyst for the resiliency and grit that I had going through the the trials that I have. Um. I, uh, I think it's just like, once I got a chance to, uh, I, I think again, I think it's the parents moving me to a different school and, and having an opportunity to kind of remove myself from that entire bullying environment, going to a new school where nobody knows who I am and then reinventing myself there gives you so you get to start like clean slate, right? Like fresh. So they, they, they've got none of the history that you were dealing with and you just get to, and now you're this new guy at a school that's already done basic training. I mean, that story rates itself. Like it's, it's, I'm not, there wasn't a lot of 16 year olds doing basic training with the infantry at that, uh, at that point. So I think that I leaned on that and I, I use that kind of as, to, as a, like a, as a crutch for part of my identity. Um, and I think, yeah, I do, I do still to this day, like military is a big part of, uh, of my story for sure. I don't think, uh, I'd be, uh, fortunate enough to do all the things that I've done without the, the resources of the military. Um, but it's a, it's a tough one to, to nail down for what was the, the real, the real thing. But I think, yeah, leaning on, uh, being able to, to laugh at yourself. And, uh, I think, uh, I was, I was fortunate enough to find two really good friends, uh, in that new high school environment that, uh, when you find the right friend, like, and you realize that, you know, there's that love, respect and, uh, and appreciation for who you are and, and vice versa, then, uh, then you get, uh, those, uh, those wounds that you had from earlier days kind of, you know, heal a little bit and you, and you can move forward. But that being said, like even like once I got through high school and then into the first year of university, I got into a pretty dark place. Uh, again, you're in a new environment uh, and, and it's a bigger pool of people from all over the place and all walks of life. And uh, I don't think I was doing well in certain classes. And so I think I was getting a little frustrated there. So I got into a dark place again. But then 
the military challenges you and and uh and gives you a purpose to kind of channel the the hardship you're dealing with with physical exertion right like there's nothing there's no substitute to, to putting the body through some some hard paces and realizing what you're capable of doing i think is is the is the the big takeaway i think with the challenges that you face uh going through some of the training exercises like i remember doing some weekends with the west nova scotia regiment in nova scotia and like the gear was like corduroy like flannel like you wake up the weapons got frost on it and you're in a trench and it is just bone chilling cold right and then monday morning you got to show up for classes like you've been doing that all weekend there was no real rest for your weekend your weekend was work uh so i think yeah i just threw myself at uh at doing more and that uh you don't really have time to to mull it over and think what was me like you just gotta keep going so so with this background that you have with both parents as educators and then you realizing that you're more of a hands-on learner i think there's a lot of people out there that are kind of funneled through into higher education and i think this is why a lot of people struggle when they get to school you know they, they were in this tribe for you know up to 18 years old and all of a sudden they're in a completely different college university whatever it is and maybe their why isn't there their sense of purpose so have you had discussions with your parents on the kind of trade school path versus the purely academic path? Because I know that the degree served well, but was it really the knowledge of that degree or simply the piece of paper that, that really was invaluable for the, the transition to pilot? That's a solid question, James. I like that question a lot. Because uh, I think it's a big question. I think it's like the cost of post-secondary is just getting more and more and more right now. And you're starting to wonder what's what's the real benefit of of that piece of paper and, and what does it uh what does it do for you i think it's just another way to get experience right i mean yeah it's hard it's hard to put a pin into like what part of that degree is serving me now um but i really do think it's the the problem solving skills of, of the engineering esque degree that has has worked and served me super well in both search and rescue as a SARTEC and as, as a pilot as well. Um, but to what you said, like you, you show up and you you pick what you want to study, but uh, and you only get one one real chance of like 18 to you're like, OK, I'm going to be a doctor, you know, like. How do you even know that's what you want to do? But you're like, all right, well, here's my, I don't know, $15,000 to take first year university to find out, you know, that's not, that's not for me. So I don't know. I think it's a, it's a tough one because the way they have it structured, you don't really have a, not everybody has the same high school with like a woodworking class or whatever to figure out like, okay, that's, or like a mechanic bay to figure out if that's what you want to do. And uh, so it's, it's quite an expensive, like, what am I, what do I want to do with my life uh, path? So that gap year, like, I don't know, is that the solution? Who knows, you know, like go, go travel, go see other cultures, uh, go see how other people live and realize how good we have it in the Western world. Like, uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel and it's just, 
it's craziness that if you haven't if you haven't seen how some of the other countries uh, live and exist, uh, we don't. I don't think we have the magic solution here um, at all. There's uh, definitely tighter tighter tribes, as you say, out there, and uh, especially now that we're post pandemic, I think we're seeing the the effects of us all shutting down, and now like we got to try and re reconnect with with people and get used to to getting out and seeing people and communicate and uh and human interaction um i got kind of lost there with uh where i was going with that yeah no no but it was it was spot on i think this is it is you know there's that not knowing what we want to do at the age of 18 in england we graduate at 16 so i mean you're still a child then you've thrust out into the world right either you're going to go to university or you're going to get a job and if you are you're just going to be an apprentice and you know there is a lot of that residual element of they used to groom people for factories for a long time through school so i think there's there's a need for an awakening now for parents really to inspire their children to truly believe look you can do anything and it doesn't have to involve a college it might and if so you know you're going to have an amazing journey into law school or medicine or whatever it is but there are also so many other things that you can do where you know a year in community college and you'll come out as a firefighter or a mechanic or all these other trades that are so needed in the world yeah so i mean thanks for bringing me back on track as a dad now uh I could see the the challenge that my parents went through to watch me make the decisions that I did uh, and trying to steer me in what they think is the best option, uh, given the circumstances and their upbringing and what they saw as they grew up and how, like, I think in my mom's case, she was the first one to go to university. And then my dad, same thing. I, I really think they were both uh, pioneers in the family tree for, for going to that post-secondary. And so they were big believers because they were both very successful in that, uh, in that route. But, uh, you know, my daughter wants to open up this like, uh, hat shop or something like this as kind of her, like, she wants to be an entrepreneur. And I just, I don't have any personal experience being an entrepreneur. I have friends and I know, that's a tough road. Like you, you got to have a lot of grit and you got to want it really, really bad, I think, to be successful, you know? And so that I think is the challenge of being a parent and, and, and having your offspring and trying to figure out how to best guide them with that post-secondary trade school solution is, you know, you now have the benefit of however many years of experience going through to however you got to where you are. And knowing what it took to uh, to looking at your kid who who may not have the same hardships, right? Like we're in twenty twenty two right now or twenty three, and it's it's not the same hardships as it was twenty years ago, and it was it's even less the same hardships as it was forty years ago. You know, like we don't we didn't we were computers were just coming online as like I was growing up, right? Before that, it was like like encyclopedias, like Wikipedia was in books, you know, like now you can just get on the computer and, and find whatever you want. Right. So it's a very different, the access to information is easier. Like, uh, the, the creature comforts and Western civilization are, are massive. Like, I don't think, 
people are used to, to suffering or getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And uh, so how do you create that for your offspring? Um, is a tough one because, you know, money is a, money is a finite resource for, for a lot of us. And so do you have the capital to like, you know, go try that trade school for, you know, six months or try that university for six months and figure out what you want to do. I think it really, you got to do your research and and hopefully by the time you hit that choice, you have a, a rough idea of who, who you want to be or what you want to do. And then that can change, right? I'm, sh- I'm sure you've done a couple of things. You probably couldn't project yourself at, at hosting podcasts 20 years ago. So. No, no, absolutely not. Well, the irony was I ended up becoming what I wanted to be when I was young. But here's another kind of lesson learned. Uh, at school age, I was told I was colorblind. Did one of those little books and I can see yes, some Yes, I numbers. remember doing that on one of your other podcasts. Yeah. yeah. So that's the other thing is, you know, again, with that burning desire, I mean, I'm not going to question it as a nine-year-old boy or whatever. I think I was in senior school, so probably more like 11 or 12. But yeah, you just like, okay, person with a white coat and a stethoscope, I believe everything you say because I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you take a step back and like, wait a second. You know, all these absolutes that were told, um, like, I mean, like you said, that that piece of paper that you needed to transition to the pilot, the skill set was already there. That was simply a piece of paper that you had to hand to navigate that other, you know, um, barrier to entry. Well, yeah, so. exactly. I think it's funny that that was that was my ticket to entry for the air crew selection, which I passed. So it's like if I hadn't had that piece of paper and I didn't pass the CFAT, you would have never given me the opportunity to get to that air crew selection, which I did pass. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's unfortunately a barrier that, that people have to, to get past. And I don't think it's perfect. Um, but I don't, I don't really know if I have a, a better solution because I mean, you'd, you'd have a lot of people, uh, that you'd have to, to weed out for that air crew selection. And, and they've chosen that as a, as you know, their benchmark to, to reduce the pool so that they're not throwing a ton of money at people that may may or may not be successful, I guess. So, Well, you, you sparked me like with that uh, lab coat thing with the, the colorblind, uh, going back to the, the recce patrolman course, uh, my hips have never really been like, or my nip, like my hips and knee has have never really been like my strong point, uh, if you will. And I remember being halfway through that course and, uh, I was doing one leg of, of navigation. You're just, you're given a, an initial grid and then you're given a compass and a map and they just set you loose. You got to go find glow stick after glow stick through the wood line. And I remember doing one leg and my knee and hip were getting so bad that I couldn't even wait the, the right leg. So I would take a step and then I was just at that point, just crawling really. And so I just crawled to the the nearest road, flagged down one of the the staff, and they they took me to the the medical tent. And uh, I saw a medic, and I was like, "Yeah, I think I need some ibuprofen and Tylenol, and I'll I'll figure it out." And uh, and then I, I mentioned to him that like I was taking this course to to get ready for search and rescue, and he looked at me. He's like, "There's no way you can do search and rescue with this kind of." uh injury or or uh condition like where you're not able to like weight your leg like they run a bunch they're doing like and then he just gets like super outlandish like they're running marathons every day and it's like no they don't you know like what do you know and so it just again fuels your fire to say you know what man like 
there's a lot of people out there that are gonna that are gonna try and rain on your parade, and you just got to stay true to the the goal that you've set for yourself and and dig deep. So, so how did you rehab that particular deficit? Um, I don't know if I've ever really uh, fully rehabbed it. I have like a little bit of a like leg length discrepancy and i have orthotics that i think uh help balance that out and uh to be honest i don't run a lot so i only kind of run when the military tells me to run so i'd be more of a, a biking uh guy if i was inclined to do some kind of cardio horseback recon yeah exactly <laughs> So you talked about selection then. So I'd love to get to that. You you know, you had this background with some of the, the sports, including the martial arts up to that point. Yeah. Now you have um, search and rescue selection. Talk to me about that selection process. And then what was it physically and mentally that allowed you to succeed when many others rang the bell? So to my parents' credit, uh, even though that might not have been the path, they... Uh, saw me going for they could see that i was very serious about going down this path and that i wanted to um uh prepare for it appropriately and uh i think my dad uh used to speak competitively and having gone through his education and and his trials and tribulations knew how to prepare for things even if it wasn't something he'd ever tried uh, and he had a personal trainer from Austria, I believe was the, the country the, the trainer was from, at the YMCA in Toronto uh, that he had been working with for a year or two. And he asked him if he would get me ready for, for selection. And I told him what the, what the premise of it was. It was two weeks. Um, and then the, I listed off what the the physical fitness test is where you got to run a mile and a half and under 10 minutes. And then you're doing like 33 push-ups, 30 sit-ups, eight chin-ups, a rope climb, a shuttle run. That's all got to be done in 17 minutes. And then right into the pool to swim. I don't know. I think it's like 700 meters in 20 minutes or something like that. I can't remember the exact figures, but uh, it's a, uh, it's a pretty decent gauntlet. You're, you're kind of balancing how much energy you're going to expend on that land portion to, to have, you know, a decent time in the water is kind of where my strength was with the water. So I focused more on how can I be quick in the water and finish strong and bring enough energy to do that. Um, and so I actually went live with my parents for, for two months, I think leading up to selection in Toronto. And I worked out with this guy for like five days a week and he uh, he was he was competing at the masters level, and he said like he'd never had any uh, uh, proper training for swimming, but he would get gold all the time by just watching Olympic athletes and picking out pieces of their form and then applying it to what weight training he would need to do to bring into the pool, and then how to like improve his stroke and uh, and efficiency. And so he gave me all of these tools and said, uh, when you're a week out from selection, don't go to the gym. You're not doing it. Uh, and then, uh, and then you should be good. Uh, so we worked really hard and, uh, and in combination with that record patrolling course, I was telling you about to get the map and compass down. I thought I was pretty well equipped at that point with experience in the infantry and whatnot to, to go in there and knowing it's going to be 
the full on kind of hell week scenario. And uh, I was actually pretty, pretty surprised with the, the collection of people that end up there. There's guys that have already been there twice or something like that. So they're trying to tell you like what to expect and whatever. And I was just blocking that out because if you, if you go in there expecting something and then it, and it shifts gears and goes in a different direction, now you're, you're thrown right off because you were expecting something. And if you go in there expecting absolutely nothing, then that's, that's the best way to approach it because they're going to surprise you. And, uh, and yeah, like you're, you're in the shacks with all the guys and I'm watching a bunch of them go to the gym like the day before this starts. And I was like listening to that, that trainer in the back of my head and I was like, not doing it. And sure enough, like the next day was full tilt. You're doing the PT test and like some of these guys have shown up for two weeks selection and they can't, they can't finish the, the PT test in, in a lot of time. And I mean, they're not going to tell you you're done. Like you can stay in, but you are already now like at a huge disadvantage because you didn't finish the basic entry to get into this uh, two week selection. So I was super, super happy with the preparation that I did. I think uh, the only, uh, the only weak spot in my selection was the the endurance towards the end. I didn't have, I'm very uh, lean to start with, so I didn't have a lot of fat stores. And so when we had to like go down to just living on jujubes for three days and not uh, not having any uh, <laughs> any huge amount of food, uh, I uh, I lost a lot of weight and I was I was losing a lot of energy by the end of it. But I did cross the finish line. So. So then what about mentally? I mean, again, you've got a lot of people I hear in, you know, special forces selection that physically are in great shape, but it's between their ears that let them down. Was it, when you look back, was it your martial arts? Was it the the early um, military training, as you said, waking up in frozen trenches with frozen weapons? Uh, I think it all, I think it all, it all adds up for sure. I think there was, uh, there was a couple of like, cause there's always like, um, like small taskings throughout the, the two weeks where they're like, okay, you're now doing like kind of an individual esque exercise. Here's the grid go. So very similar to the recce thing. Like there's the grid navigate to it. First one there, you know, you're, you know, you're feeling good about yourself. Cause you're like, okay, I was quick to, to figure out how to get from point A to point B. I beat a lot of the field and that, uh, you know, that energizes you to keep going, right? So I had a lot of decent early successes. Uh, I remember one night where we got woken up at like, well, I had made friends throughout the the selection because you're living in close quarters with some guys, right? And you, you're you not going to be able to get through it by yourself. I mean, lone wolf in it is not the not the way to go and it's not who they're looking for, right? You're working in teams of two on the, on the flight line, so it makes sense to to start working as a team, right? So the, there is individual tasks, but at the end of the day, they want to see if you can work with other humans. Um, so I had befriended a guy who was in um, our uh, special operations CSOR division. And uh, me and him could recognize that we were kind of like operating at a similar kind of tempo. We were getting a little bit tired and uh, Cause they always kind of wake you up we looked at each other and we're like, okay, tonight we're, we're just going to gear all the way down, right to boxers, get in the sleeping bag. It'll be fine. No problem. They're not going to bump us for a little bit. It'll be great. Sure enough. Like two hours later, they're ringing the bell. 
and they're saying like everybody out front ready to go now and we were our stuff was a gong show right it, we were the last guys out of the cabin and you're getting yelled at by instructors whatever and they split the group into two right so the first half they got out of the cabins is getting it a lot easier than the last half right so you're in the push-up position you're getting beasted but they give you an opportunity to change your your stripes right so they say okay now march to the the gate or whatever right and so we went from the back of the bus to the front of the bus and uh and that's where we wanted to be right like you, you had to use an like an, an insane amount of effort to get there but the reward was you weren't getting worked as hard as the guys that ended up in that bottom half so moves like that were were helpful in in making it through the day-to-day -day. i remember having one really dark part uh where they were uh where they were using physical training to kind of grind you down and really get get into your heads and uh i leaned out to another course member and i looked at him and i was like man i don't know if i i don't know if i got it and he just looked at me and was just like i don't ever hear those words out of your mouth again <laughs> you know so it's just it was uh i think it was the people and he ended up being on the course with me i think it was the the people I was fortunate enough to be around that uh, that helped me in that one dark moment, and then uh, and then it was a combination of the experience and prep that I did, to, and the grit that had been built up over the years to to try and get through it. So, brilliant. So I think the search and rescue community is relatively unknown to most people as well so you qualify now talk to me about the role because i know you, you touched on skydiving in the states and, and diving in um uh you didn't say virginia victoria. where did you say victoria thank you um so talk to me about all the different um elements of the sartec role well the sartec role is uh a little bit of everything really because our country is so uh diverse and climate and geography uh you got to be kind of ready to do all of the things so there's like a there's a couple of pillars that that make up a sartec your first pillar your first pillar is like they're a trained paramedic so uh with a couple of extra drugs that put them a little bit more above your average paramedic but below like an advanced care paramedic um so we do some extensive training to get guys up to speed on that. Then you uh, you go outside and and hone the skills of uh, of living off the land. So you're learning how to travel over uh, over snow, mountainous terrain, uh, existing outside, how to create a shelter, how to create fire, how to take care of people uh, outside, exposed to the elements, and then. Uh, and then you move on to to diving because at one point we uh, we had the ability to do uh, overturned uh, vessel rescues. So anything that had flipped and had created an air pocket, we could we could penetrate and and go in and uh, extract people. Uh, for obvious reasons, that's a super dangerous <laughs> uh, tasking to take on. So I I think uh, at this point they've kind of stood down. We still have the scuba capability, but I think it uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be looked at again in the in the next couple of years because it's a it's very intense. Maintain all of these qualifications throughout the year, 
you have to stay proficient in it all. So that is another pillar. That's the scuba diving. And then... Uh, was there a moment when you were parachuting down, wearing full scuba gear that you were like, I wish those fuckers in middle school could see me now? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that <laughs> more so more so on the graduation when you're jumping out of the, the buffalo. <clears throat> excuse me, the buffalo. Yeah. Uh, for graduation and in your your full orange jumpsuit. I mean, that's a that's a big day, a big moment for uh, to get there. It takes a lot. <clears throat> so, and uh, with the scuba diving thing, like attacked onto kind of the end of that is uh, what's called Ruit, uh, which is the overturned uh, simulating uh, device that they have in in Nova Scotia for for simulating a helicopter hitting the water because it's top heavy. It's all its weights up top, so it's it's more likely to roll than do anything else, right? So now you're upside down in water very quickly and the and the cabin floods. So they teach you how to get out of that. So that one was uh that one was I think one of the biggest hurdles, if not the biggest hurdle for the whole the whole star experience for me. Uh, because we got into the pool and to kind of give you uh some background, when I was 14, uh, my dad looked at me and said, Hey, you wanna you want to learn to scuba dive with me? And I'm like, sure, man, let's do it. 14. Uh, so me and him would study together and <clears throat> we took our basic open water course. But the, to get qualified, you had to do it in open water. And we lived in Alberta, which is not the most tropical place to learn how to scuba dive. And I think it was either fall or spring shoulder season, but uh, the the open water dive was at uh, Two Jack Lake, and I think the temperature of the water was like one or two degrees. It was not warm. And I was 14-year-old Kent, who was even skinnier than current Kent. And the yeah, like I wasn't dry suit qualified, so it was like the thickest wetsuit they could find that would fit me. And so we go into the water, we get at depth, and one of the drills is taking the half mask off letting it flood and then purging it with your, with your air from your nose. And as soon as I took that mask off, the water flooded into your nose. And I mean, you and me sitting here, we're normally just breathing through our nose. And even though I had a rag in my mouth, I was like, I locked up. I was like, this is, I don't have oxygen. Like I'm freaking out. And so now I'm trying to, you know, dive for the the surface and the instructors fight me because he doesn't want me to expand the lungs too much and throw a, pulmonary embolism or any of that so uh that was a very sketchy moment and i got to the surface my dad's freaking out because you know he's got to go home to my mom and be like you know that thing i took him on it was crazy uh and the instructor looked at me he's like i can't give you the certification if you don't go down and do it again and i was like all right let's do it at five feet and so i went down and uh I did it again, same reaction, but I stopped just shy of the surface the second time around and found a way to like breathe through the reg in the cold water. It was just like putting your head under it like a slurpy machine, you know, like it was just ice cold, immediate uh, brain freeze. And so I think that uh, was a bit of a bit of resilience, but it was also a fear that uh, that I took with me into the pool. Fast forward to the SAR course. And now one of the drills is you uh, sit in in a chair in a controlled environment with the bottle, the emergency bottle we wear on our vests in the event that we we flip. Uh, and the instructor leaned me back, water floods in your nose, and I'm right back to 14-year-old Kent. 
and I get through, I, I breathe through, but uh, I've now got all that baggage with me. And the instructor's like, all right, go finish the, uh, the bottle in the corner. And I put my head underwater and I think I drained that bottle in like two breaths. Like, and I, I can make that thing last for, for multiple runs now. But uh, I, again, looked at that same guy that I had on selection and said, like, I don't think I could do this my buddy Alex. And, uh, he was like, well, I think you, you can, you can definitely do this and you just got to figure it out. And, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of like mental visualization to get back into that, uh, that trainer and, and just push through it and realize I do have oxygen and just focus on, on the breathing. And, uh, to this day, I think that was one of the bigger things that has armed me to get through stuff is realizing that you can get past a fear if you, if you use if you use some visualization tools and really in a controlled space take yourself to that mental state and then uh, find a way to push past it uh and it still it still hangs out in the back of my head every once in a while when i got to do that stuff but uh it has gotten significantly easier my water confidence is obviously through the roof now but uh it was definitely a hurdle I had a guest, Christian, um, just on recently. He was a door gunner on the, you know, a lot of the combat um, uh, helicopters. And he was talking about the same thing. And obviously, I can see it in my mind the exact prop that you're talking about. But I just had an aha moment when I was talking to him like, okay, that prop in the pool isn't descending. But if you guys go down the ocean, not only is it turning upside down, but you're sinking. So every second that goes by, you're getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Sure. I would say yes, there are float bags on the helicopter that ah, will deploy okay. theoretically. So uh theoretically the float bags keep it upright, but uh I think there's enough cavities in it that it's not it's not like sinking immediately, but you're right. I mean you don't want to be hanging out in there for any great length of time. Like efficiency on getting out of the machine is is what you want to do. So Absolutely. Well, what about notable rescues as a SAR tech? Are there any that spring to mind? Um, yeah, I'm just going to finish. Like, I, I realized I kind of got sidetracked there and just and finish off with the last little bit uh, of, of the of the SAR tech thing. And it's uh, the parachuting, I guess, is the, the last kind of piece of the puzzle mixed with that. Okay, so parachuting and then the, the last real piece is the, the mountain rescue. So rigging um rescue systems uh, in kind of a mountainous or steep terrain to to affect a rescue and then the parachuting into uh confined areas is is also extremely difficult i don't think there's a lot of your average sport parachutist is not trying to get into a half soccer pitch size field that's surrounded by trees on all sides because it's sketchy, right? Because the wind changes coming off the trees. So you have lift, then you don't have lift and the canopy surges. And, uh, I've definitely ran into trees. It's, it's a thing. It's just complex and, uh, it ups the, the injury exposure and danger of the, the whole thing really. So notable rescues for me, I was a little bit of a stand down standway. It was kind of my nickname uh, <laughs> as a Star Trek. It was, That's it was a better, better nickname than the first one you had. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Definitely uh, an improvement. So I would get tasked. And then before I even got 
in the aircraft or we're in the air and we're getting stood down, right? So um, nothing uh, nothing too crazy. I actually had more exposure when I was doing uh, the lead-up paramedic training. I saw a lot of uh, a variety of calls there treating, uh, treating people. Um, I almost had a, a really good mission. Uh, I was on Slash and uh which is like a posture <clears throat> we hold over the weekends and the friday night i uh i was coughing so bad i couldn't even really get up the stairs and barb looked at me and she's like i don't think you are able to do your job if you got called out right now and i'm like all right you're probably right so i made the tough decision of giving up that shift to a buddy who then went and uh affected a rescue in in gander all night saving a girl who uh broke her femur at the top of a mountain and the helicopter couldn't get up there because of clouds. So he hiked from the base, got her, stabilized her, stayed with her all night, uh, and then extracted her the next morning. And then I checked myself into the hospital, like either that morning and was in the hospital. I didn't get to escape the hospital. I was, I was on uh, antibiotics for a week fighting pneumonia. So, it was a tough call, but it was the it was the right call. I think it would have it would have been uh, an extra hard mission if I had uh, said yes to to holding the, the posture. But no, uh, no real big crazy rescues from me. Uh, pretty standard stuff: picking people up off boats and and uh, rescuing uh, people that uh, don't read signs, getting trapped by the the tides in you know coves and stuff. So. Brilliant. Well, you've talked about some of the, the darker times early on. As you progressed through your SARTEC career, were there any resurgence of that from the mental health standpoint? I think, uh, I think what, uh, what would make sense with your podcast here is that like all these uh, frontline people out there uh, are working really hard, pushing limits. It's insidious on how burnout can happen. Like it just, uh, it creeps in. And I don't think it was until I switched to pilot that I realized how, uh, how taxing it really was. And like, you give back that, that pager and you're like, Oh, like, I don't, I don't have any of that responsibility right now. It's uh, it's fantastic. Cause it's even when I'm off, I mean, they could occasionally, you know, give you a call and be like, okay, we lost somebody off the schedule. We need you. So you're never really, it's really hard to, to separate those two worlds, like the, the home life and the, and the work life. So it, uh, I think that was, that was the biggest mental hurdle that I, or one of the biggest ones I had was, uh, just always being on, I guess is, is kind of the the thing that you're doing. I think I was also frustrated with my progression up in the ranks. I was seeing some guys uh, to no fault of their own, getting kind of promoted ahead of myself or others, uh, which I didn't think was the right call. It was more that they had the time in and not whether they were ready for that, that promotion. And so uh, I remember getting at a really dark place over, over a move while I was in, in Gander. And it, and it probably was one of the catalysts for my, my shifting gears and really going after pilot 
is I watched somebody get promoted that I knew shouldn't have been promoted. And, uh, and it frustrated me that my boss didn't see it the way I did um, <clears throat> at the time. So I had to take a, I checked myself into the, the doc's office and said, like, I can't go to work right now because I'm just going to want to punch people. So I'm just going <laughs> to remove myself from that situation and just hang out and do me for a week or two. And then, uh, and then I was all right. Obviously you once you kind of sleep on it and take yourself out of the, the mix for a little bit, you can bring yourself back down. What gave you that foresight though? Cause so many people don't realize that. And I was, I was always, you know, getting shit because I used all my, nearly all my vacation days and things, but I, I had this firstly is yearning to be with my family. So if it was there, I want to use it with them. But secondly, I kind of just a realization, look, this is, fucking exhausting like any opportunity i get to have a, a mental health day catch up on some sleep you know do the thing do the normal things that most people take for granted i would jump at that chance so that was that was kind of my philosophy what gave you the foresight to do that when some people could argue that wasn't exactly the way the the environment was set up back then i think i had enough time and uh proven myself as an operator at that point that to have the the confidence to realize like the wheels will continue to turn if you drop off the schedule tomorrow like the system is going to find a way to keep going so as important as you are you are replaceable especially uh in bigger organizations um and if you've made yourself irreplaceable you're probably not doing something right because it's got like a single point of failure really within the, the organization. So I think at that point I knew that um, I wasn't, I wasn't in a good health space. Um, but to answer your question, it, it's, it's hard. I think maybe as a, as a kid, when I was going through the, the bullying, my parents also had me see a psychologist. So I had exposure to the, the mental health system and realized the benefits at an early age and knew that uh, there's true power in taking care of uh, what's between the ears, right? I mean, not it, and, and it's getting more mainstream now to, to realize like this is, there's a lot to this. And I think uh, any high operator in, in, in the Canadian military now knows that mental health is, is massive. Like if you're not, if you're not running at optimum levels, everything else kind of falls off, right? Like it just, uh, it affects everything, your interactions, your performance in the gym, like everything, right? So uh, I knew, uh, I knew sometimes you just need a break, right? Like it just, uh, you need to take some off time that's not even scheduled and just remove yourself from the situation and, and, and reset. Uh, Cause there's, there's no better way to do it than just take yourself out of the environment, really. Just completely uh, reset, essentially, yeah. Now, what about sleep? Did you have any exposure or understanding back then of the importance of sleep, the detriment of sleep deprivation? Because it's it's a very new concept, I think, to a lot of us in the first responder professions. Love, love this. Uh, so I've been blessed with the ability to just nap anywhere, really. So even if we were getting tasked on a mission in the Cormorant, I would get fully dressed in a dry suit, 
with my harness on, hook up to the ceiling, and then just pass out on the floor, like the hard floor. And I'd be like, wake me up when we get to the boat or whatever, right? Just just maximizing. Because like sometimes you get tasked at like, you know, 10, 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. You're not really showing up on scene until like midnight or whatever. So you were you were just kind of falling asleep. You get woken up by the phone. And then, you know, you want to be able to keep that tank full. But it wasn't actually until I did uh, pilot training that I, I really was able to like self-experiment with how powerful sleep is uh because the the schedule was extremely rigorous in moose jaw when i was when i was learning uh how to fly the the harbor and if i wasn't in bed by like nine o'clock like i could see my performance like drop the next day like very obvious that i would not be performing at the same level so i needed that eight hours and I would structure my schedule such that I would get that eight hours. And I would do that first flight in the morning. And I'd eat my lunch. I'd find another office to nap in for like 20 minutes. And then I'd go flying again in the net, like in the afternoon. And I mean, I brought that same grit that I learned in uh, SAR to the pilot world, which is, I would say, more rare. And uh, I was able to finish my... Uh, my phase two training on the Harvard two in like, I'd say a month and a half earlier than any of the course mates that I started with, just because I was so aggressive with balancing sleep and, and flying as often as I could to, to get through it. But so, yeah, like that was where I really got to uh, self-experiment with, with sleep and realize the power of sleep and, and the, and the degraded performance you get if you are lacking or have sleep debt or any of that, you really need to make sure that uh, you rest the body. Absolutely. Well, what about within the profession? Once you became a pilot, what what are the parameters? Because I know the naval industry now, the, the airline industries, they set the bar pretty high when it comes to making sure there's crew rest in the first responder profession. And, and of course, we need to be awake at night to protect people. But there's a, a complete disregard, I think, of the impact of sleep deprivation, certainly the power of rest and recovery between shifts. So we work yeah. our men and women to death, literally. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're pretty good at it. I think for the for the crew rest part, we we have rules in place that uh, that really can't be messed with um, to give crews rest. Um, and we also run a a chart before you fly and to try and get a gauge from the crew on on what people's sleep debt is and how they're feeling before we even take this on. Um, where I don't think we're quite maximizing uh, the potential is is realizing that we're we're running guys in in night shifts without having them we're giving them the ability to set themselves up for that night shift so it's like today i could be on standby so flying from like six to four regular kind of work day but tomorrow i could be holding the night shift which means starting at four to six the next morning i have the phone on and i'm ready to go fly to to whatever mission that means like the onus is on me to take care of myself for that day and then like i go to sleep at a normal time but then maybe i'm getting woken up at 10 and flying till five in the morning so if you think about that that's 
the odds are you are now working from seven that previous morning till like six the next morning. That's a big stretch to ask for somebody who's established a very stable Chris, uh, rest cycle to then now I want you to operate at full, full performance for, you know, an indefinite period of time. Do I think we should relook at maybe giving, uh, a, like pilots drugs for, for, for those night most like, uh, missions. I think, I think there's definitely some research we could be doing into that, whether it be like caffeine pills or some kind of accelerant to, to make sure that you're alert. Cause I remember being on some of those missions out in Greenwood and Gander and I was useless at trying to, trying to help the, the pilots stay awake. Like I was, I was nodding off in the back too, you know, like it's just, it's uh it's a difficult task to, to, you know, live your daily life and then be up all night um working at a high level absolutely well you see in that degradation of of uh cognition as well i mean that's that's after a night of no sleep but you look at the, these responders i mean they're working 10 20 30 years so every every shift is a step down step down so you've got the chronic yeah. disease element and the mental health yes. element and then you've got the acuity and, you, and i argue if you look at a lot of our line of duty deaths you know these firefighters get lost in buildings or they fall off a ladder or you know what was how much of that was actually coming from a degradation of skills through sheer exhaustion yeah and and that's it's insidious again you don't even realize uh how much sleep debt or or exhaustion you're carrying into it because because adrenaline hides a lot of it right so adrenaline will take you to a certain point until it kind of falls off and you're not really getting that same uh release and then, uh, and then whatever's left in the tank has got to carry the load, right? So, I, I totally, I agree with what you're saying for sure. So you mentioned about not realizing the toll till you gave up your pager, and you were in the pilot position. Now, walk me through any aha moments you had, highs or lows, as you changed into the front of the the helicopter or the plane. I think uh, it gave me the. Uh, the insight into uh that ever elusive work-life balance uh i'm fulfilling a similar role as i did in gander scheduling for the pilots and just understanding that like somebody's urgency is not my urgency or just understanding what uh how to balance those work tasks with your with your home life like I'm given a phone that I'm expected to respond to when I'm on duty, but then other emails kind of creep in to, to that like personal life. And then like, you know, somebody's asking you to do something, but it's like, okay, can this wait? And maybe we send emails at a more appropriate time or I'll respond to this on Monday, like, or, cause I don't really have traditional weekends sometimes like, my weekend's a work weekend, and so like Tuesday and Wednesday are kind of my days off. So it's just trying to find that uh, that work-life uh, balance, I think, is is how to keep the, the mental health nice and, and steady, really. So going back to the SARTEC, one of the things I think that's hard as well in the first responder profession is you have a multitude of types of personalities, but I would argue the you know the one that I 
follow, chase, you know, find mentors in are the ones that truly understand that concept that, you know, lives are at stake, that, that our spectrum of skills, the Swiss Army knife, could be needed at any one moment. But that is a huge array of, of a skill set to maintain. Some people understand that diligence, even as you said, kind of overlapping that work-life balance. And, and, you know, in our profession, more often than not, you end up taking vacation days and using your personal money to stay up on your training because it's not provided by your employer, even though it's completely work-related. Um, <laughs> and then, which is insane, but... Um, yeah, and then is. you have the other side where, well, the fittest I ever was was Fire Academy, and then I'm just going to ride the lazy boy for the next 25 years, and then everyone in between. How... Do you personally and or your community cr create that um, that dynamic within your profession to stay up on all these different skills that you are required to be very proficient in? Well, the uh, I'll speak to the pilot community now where I'm kind of like just starting to join that. Uh, there's a kind of a laundry list of proficiency checks that you got to hit uh, within like the quarters, like, you know, January, February, March, you got to have this many boat hoists, star sequences. Um, you've got to have flown on night vision goggles, you know, like all of these oncurring or ongoing uh, proficiencies. And there's only so many, uh, so many shifts that you can fly. Right. So it's, it's not even uh, the member's fault if they can't really get out there. And, you know, there's only so many helicopters and we're only flying so much, right? So you just have to be really efficient with the time on the airframe that you do have. And I think that's where hopefully you've selected the right kind of motivated people that want to maximize the use of those hours, right? So we're not... We're not out there taking uh, photos and, and joy rides, you know, like there's there's small moments of that, but primarily you're, you're using the asset to maximize that that training opportunity so that when you do go out for a, like a night flight on night vision goggles, you're you're checking all of those boxes. And by the end of the flight, hopefully you feel like three days down the road, if you have the hardest night mission you're going to have that you're you're ready for it and that you're 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 somewhat uh prepared but as far as like city side it's a little bit harder for me to you know practice like with saw with egg as a sartec i could have gone parachuting on the side right i mean or like ski patrol to kind of like beef up my exposure to uh medical or go climb into to play with ropes and and systems um it's a little harder with uh leasing i guess a uh, an eh 101 <laughs> at your local flying club so i think uh i think at, at, at that stage you just got to kind of befriend uh co-workers and just pick their brains and and hopefully you got a good culture of, of talking through emergencies and experiences and and just trying to draw from that experience so that when you when you do get on the airplane you can uh you can apply all those those lessons that uh were learned by other people and hopefully you don't have to to go through the the failures yourself although there is benefit uh in going through failures yourself for sure but that's a whole other thing <laughs> so you have this unique perspective where you were a SAR tech now you're in the front um there again can be a, a whole smorgasbord of different ways of of navigating a 
career in a first responder profession, I would say even though not every one of us is suited for each rung of the ladder, there's a lot of value in understanding the the role truly of other people in a fire engine, a helicopter, etc. What yeah. did you bring to the pilot role being a SAR tech that maybe some of the fellow pilots weren't able to because of your background? Well, my knowledge of the airframe for sure. Like I, I think the only thing I have to compare to is my initial uh, my initial course on the Cormorant, where uh, it was myself, uh, U.S. Coast Guard, uh, former Dolphin pilot, another pilot from uh, the SAR community, but flew the the four twelve uh, Bell four twelve, and then uh, another brand new pilot. So quite a spectrum on the course. And I think uh, the advantages that uh, the two former pilots had was obviously they got more time flying. But my my advantage was just the knowledge of how this machine operates and how we use it and um, what I can expect from the other crew members on board. Uh, so I found it extremely easy to reintegrate back into uh, the airframe. I haven't quite really seen yet what I can uh, what I can offer, but I think a little bit of a translator. Sometimes I know as a as a as a star tech pilots would be talking about things, and it was just like whatever. It's not my job. Um, you do you, and I think now I can kind of like navigate it and keep it keep it more simple. Like, like people. People love to overcomplicate terms, and I think at the end of the day, it's there's there's a lot of simplicity and redundancy built into helicopters. And so, if I can be the guy, the conduit that can that can be between the the guys, the operators in the back to the front end, and be like, this is kind of what they need, but then also understand what the front end needs from the back, because the because the orange guys love to bring gear. So they have a lot of kit in the back of that helicopter and she's getting heavy. Uh, and that chews up time that we can, that's one less hoist uh, because we got to fly in a profile that if we lose an engine, we're, we're still stable in the hover and we don't have to like reject to the ground or, or fly away. Um, so just being able to communicate uh, that and like just the perspective I have of, do we really need all that gear? In my limited exposure to to missions, did I did I make use of all that gear? Like, are we just filling this helicopter because it's as big as it is? You know, so uh, I am excited to see what what I can do. I, I'm sure I won't uh, I won't be everybody's flavor of tea now that I'm I'm on this side of the 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 bulkhead, if you will. Um, because I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see it from a different perspective now, and and look back and be like, I, you know what, I can see it from these guys' perspective that maybe we could do better here, and then I could also switch hats and be like, okay, well, I could also see their their perspective. So it's, uh, it'll be interesting for sure. Brilliant. Well, I want to throw some uh, closing questions at you before I let you go, if you've got time. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. I think it, I can't remember what the actual title is. Thinking Fast and Slow. 
think it's by David something. Uh, it talks about the kind of the, the front end of the brain versus the like more logical, like our instinct versus uh, the more logical part of our brain that thinks through like actions. So we're using all of our experience right now, approaching any um, situation and we're very, our, our front end of the brain is doing a lot of the work, right? It's like, it's as soon as you walk into a room, if you're a paramedic, what's the situation? And, and you just digest all of that very, very quickly. And your brain is just immediately uh, giving you an answer. Uh, whether it's the right answer is is the job of that kind of deeper uh, part of the brain where it's, you know, maybe you got to take another breath or two and, and really think through the the next steps that you're about to do. And I think that was one of the things that I uh, I learned because you, again, somebody else's emergency is not, not necessarily your emergency, right? So if you take that extra couple of seconds to kind of really come up with a more logical plan as opposed to just acting on what you see, you might uh, you might pick up on, on a few other things and, and formulate a better plan. So I think that book's really good. Um, I can send you the actual details of it after this. Um, any other books? Um, Nothing that really comes uh, comes to, to mind. No, that was that was a good one. So just with that for a second, I've never been very good at recalling facts and figures. However, all the training that I had under stressful situations, that right decision used to always come out. You know, most of the time, and I was always you know amazed by that. Like I couldn't have recalled X, Y, and Z if you'd asked me to kind of write it down cold. But, you know, all those pieces came together and there was the right reflex. So what with that book, what were the takeaways as far as the the diligence and level of training to be able to make those instantaneous correct decisions? Uh, I think the takeaway was like, and it's been a while since I've actually read it, but uh, I think he was saying that it does serve us quite well. Uh, like our instincts are very, very often uh, pretty sound. Um, and our ability to come up with a very fast response is is actually pretty incredible. And usually it's, it is, uh, it's usually more often than not the correct one. If you've, if you've done the training and, and practice things that are as similar as what you might face uh, and set yourself up for that moment, then uh, like, you, like you said, it, uh, it'll serve you well. Um, and just knowing when to, when to really employ that, uh, that secondary, uh, that secondary step, that longer logical thinking through uh, what's, uh, what's going to be the ramifications if I do X, Y, and Z and what are the follow on effects of, me instinctually jumping into the water and and swimming to that uh, that patient like how am i getting out of this um and just applying more more of a global approach i suppose and staying on that topic just for a second um i've seen a shift in some departments again away from taxing uncomfortable realistic training to more you know box checking 
gently, softly training. That terrifies me because I want my worst ever experiences to be on the drill ground, not in the real world. What's the the kind of um, philosophy on realism of training in your world now? I love that question because uh, I actually brought it up when I was in my last phase of training at the helicopter school. Because uh, I was uh, I was the outlier for sure going into that training where I said like I don't think we're doing enough to prepare these pilots for future operations. And they said, well, what do you mean? Like, uh, I'm like, I, I don't think there's enough stress that we put on these people. And they were like, well, check rides are stressful. If you don't make the check ride, then you're done. You don't get to be a pilot. I'm like, yeah, sure. That's for sure the reality. But once we get to a certain point where we feel like, okay, they're, the odds are going to be that they're going to, they're going to make it through the, the course. We need to surprise these people. We need to wake them up at 2 a.m. and be like, all right, I want you to go from here to there and on goggles uh and and extract a patient and they've had no prep on doing that but that is that's combat that's sar that's that's all of the things like you're not you're not going to get a full day to prep and read maps and study weather and and plan your trip you're going to get half an hour 45 minutes figuring it out and uh there was there was really no appetite for it, which is kind of disappointing. Um, the the commandant of the school was a, uh, as far as I know, just a kind of more of a. He had never been in the operational side of the house, so he was always kind of in that that training development stream. And I don't think that's that that doesn't make a really well rounded leader, right? I mean, I think you need to have both sides of those equation and. And I've been on the operational side and I see what you need to, to do. And, and like, sure enough, the first shift on the Cormorant that I did was, was a pretty challenging mission. Right? Like we got tasked to extract somebody from uh, an inlet and the clouds were right down to like a hundred feet off the water. Right. And that's, it's too low for us to murk in to, to get to them. So we had to go above it and then we found a hole and you know, you're on goggles now, like night vision goggles. It's like, this was day one out of training. Like it was, it was wild. Right. And I was ready for that based mostly because I had experience not as a pilot, but an experience as dealing with first time stressful situations that I'd never seen before. Right. And I think, I think you're right. It scares me as well. Uh, I think we have risk adverse leaders right now that nobody wants to be the guy that uh, puts people in harm's way. But the, the facts are uh, first responders do dangerous things. Like, and if we can push the envelope in training, like you say on the drill ground, just uh, get people being comfortable in uncomfortable situations, then I think that's, that's the way forward. I agree completely. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad I asked it. Um, all right. Well, the next closing question. Are there any films and or documentaries that you love? Ooh, uh, what's the, what's the documentary? Uh, Last Breath. Have you seen that one? I, about the saturation diver? I haven't, but someone just recommended that probably about a month ago. So I definitely need to watch it. Yeah. So saturation diver is at depth. Uh, the, 
the thrusters on the oil platform fail for whatever reason, the connection to the GPS fails and, and the platform shifts and cuts his lifeline to the, the dive bell. And it's about uh, the other diver that's on the ground. And it uh, it's a mind blowing documentary I, of like just of grit and uh, of like a refusal to kind of give up on uh, on a fellow uh, teammate. So uh, I think it's a I think it's a real it's a must watch for sure. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, they reminded me of that now. So I, I need to watch that definitely. All right, next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I might throw my dad under the bus. Do it. Not because he was a not because he was a first responder, but he um he ended up being the the chief executive officer of City of Calgary. And so he managed all the firefighters and all of the ambulance crews um, for a couple of years there. And he, uh, he got, it's a very different lens, I guess, to uh, what we do um, because now you're, you're dealing with uh, the overall global picture of how you manage, uh, you know, a 5,000 person strong ambulance force or 10,000 strong uh firefighter course and or uh like uh community like do they have the right gear can we afford the right gear how do we do the right training uh i think he even had uh while he was in uh in that position like a a police officer that uh there was an accident with uh, a training weapon you know like it's just it was an exposure to all all, all of the things that first responders so i guess that's the the first one that comes to to mind to be honest that will be an interesting conversation and it's, it's pertinent. I'm just at the moment trying to work with an outside organization to address the health issues in the first responders in my area. We just had um, a first responder take his life at the beginning of January and another guy who I knew about two days ago took his own life as well. Young, young guy, twin twin kids. Um, and I'm sorry to hear that. It's, it's, uh, that's what to see. It's horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And and the the issue that I come up against time and time again is this short sighted. Anytime there's an, an initiative that would be proactive, oh, we don't have the money for that. And if you look longitudinally, if you invest in more staffing, more time off in between shifts, a healthier workforce would actually save money hand over fist. So speaking to someone who can speak freely now because they're not in that position anymore, you yeah. know, what are some of the things that you're being told at that level? You know, what are some of the myths that maybe were being believed? Because, I mean, so many people even in the fire service, or excuse me, in, in America still think that firefighters sit around watching TV waiting for a call. When yeah. if you stand in most suburban and urban areas, all you ever hear is sirens all day long. So they're running their yeah. ass off all day and all night. So, yeah, that would be an intriguing conversation. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, yeah. All right. Let's make it happen. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, then the last question for you, make sure everyone knows where to find you in your extensive social media profile. (laughs) 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 What do you do to decompress these days? What do I do to decompress? Uh, Well, it was mountain biking until I fell off and separated my shoulder. Um, I heard that story, by the way. Was it it, it supposed to be with Dave initially? Yeah, it was. I did. I did hear that story. So yeah, and Dave. Dave was getting too comfortable with with uh, with my buddy Brandon having a coffee, and I was like, "No way, I'm going." 
dress, which was the mistake. <laughs> but uh, coffee wins. Well, it's all good. Um, uh, to de-stress. You know what? Right now, like, and it's been it's been an ongoing theme with uh, with some of my buddies. There is, uh, of all things, Call of Duty, right? Like, more so for the the social aspect. Of, I'll get on a headset with a with a with a firefighter out on the East Coast that used to be a star tech with me, and it's just a way for us to connect. And uh, it's just mindless uh, uh, gaming, but uh, it's a it's a good way to just vent. Um, with just like, you know, Call of Duty is really just the the avenue that we communicate over over headset, really. It's just like our conduit to, to vent about the things he's dealing with and, and whatever I'm dealing with. And it's just a good way to, to vent and the therapy part of the just, you know, having fun and, and doing something that uh, that's not, doesn't matter at the end of the day, you know, jump in, jump out. So what are some of his frustrations coming from your community going into my community? Um, I think he probably misses like so much, like the star tech community, especially travels quite a bit. And our, uh, our training calendar is, is heavy in that. Like you're not really getting it all done at the office. You got to travel to certain places to get it done. So the tempo is a little bit, higher uh he works in kind of rural halifax so i don't think he gets the same kind of call frequency as like the the metropolitan kind of guys do um and then there was a little bit of uh him bouncing around from different stations so that was maybe a little bit on the on the frustrating uh the side but i think i think overall he seems happy so i mean i think he's enjoyed the shift uh because it's a little bit uh a little bit quieter but at the same time like you said like sirens are ringing like more often than not, it's the closest asset to somebody going through some kind of medical emergency. So he's still doing, uh, you know, frontline uh, medical work stuff. I mean, another thing with Western society is I think, I don't know, maybe you can speak better to this, obviously, uh, is, is there, is there less fires? Like, um, it, are things safer? Did we build in a better system to, to protect ourselves from fire? Yes, is the answer, I believe. If if you look at a lot of the the fires of yesteryear, they burned down. That's that's yeah. the basic, you know, physics yeah. of it. So they built something that was newer, safer, less flammable. Now the contents obviously are becoming more and more toxic and they burn hotter, so there's that side yeah. as well. But cell phones and, you know, denser populations, I think, you know, people are getting out. Even if it is on fire, yeah. everyone's getting out, which is awesome. But the offset is I mean uh, this maddens me. This just just absolutely sickens me. But we still lose the same amount of people on the roads every year. So we're out there watching death and destruction. The, none of these, you know, driving yeah. agencies are kind of going. Oh, maybe we should actually educate these people better and set our standards higher so that we don't give a sixteen-year-old a pair, you know, car keys and then just go and murder them and their classmates into a telephone pole. Um, so you know, that's the thing is that I. Yes, the fires happen, absolutely still. And some areas would probably listen to this and be like, we burn all the time. And other areas would be like, yeah, I haven't had a fire in 10 years. So there is a spectrum. Yep. But it's all the other things that we do now. Like I said, jack of all trades, master of none. You know, the yep. EMS side especially is what... I mean, I think anyone who does the the combination of the both would 
put their hand on their heart and say, yeah, 90 plus percent of what we do is EMS these days. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that for sure. Fair enough. Yeah. No, uh, very similar issues. I think, uh, I think you kind of have to have done the job to really realize the, the mental, the health, mental health aspect of it really. Um, and, and it's told that it kind of takes on, on people that, uh, don't regularly get exposed to it at all. Right. Like one day you're just, you're facing a car wreck and, and you just don't even like Hollywood kind of probably shields us from really the, like the, the absolute chaos and gruesomeness and the smells and the, and the, the fumes and the, it's just all of the things that you just can't, it's hard to put into words until you, until you put somebody in that situation and then, and then they're hearing screams and, and just like, it's just a lot to, to manage. And if, you're not uh, actively taking care of people. And uh, I mean, I don't know, I'd say in yesteryears in both our communities, it was like, you know, go have a beer and solve it. And I don't know if that's the running solution anymore. Um, so, I, but I still think you need to talk it out, right? And I'm like talking with peers who have been there definitely, I think helps. I mean, there's definitely, I'm sure you've seen dark humor to get through it. I mean, there's all sorts of of ways, but uh, I think we definitely have to look after each other because I too have seen some people take their lives, um, and it makes you kind of shake your head, like how did we miss that? Um, and uh, and some people just don't understand the power of reaching out for help. I think, and uh, even doing podcasts, therapeutic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I feel like do I see someone on it? Yeah, three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely all right so then for people listening i was you know tongue-in-cheek talking about your social media presence um where are the best places to reach out to you and, and connect with you if people wanted to uh i am on linkedin um and facebook i think really are it right now i uh i don't really have a, a big online presence i kind of Try to stay presence uh, present, and uh, I I really just use Facebook Messenger to get in touch with uh, with old friends, I guess. Brilliant. Yeah. So that's it. Well, Ken, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, I never know, especially people that you know aren't online very much and haven't done a podcast before. Um, you know where it's going to go when there's very very little information, but it's been amazing. Obviously, I knew about you and we chatted before, but. Um, this has been an amazing conversation to go from, you know, childhood bullying to high levels of training and everything in between. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you having me.